Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Jesus Christ is alive, and when he rose from the dead, one of the most amazing things that he did is he put together a group of people, and he calls them the church. And he says, now that I'm risen from the dead, the one thing that you ought to do is take that good news to everyone everywhere, that I'm alive and that in me, everyone and anyone can have new life. This is the great privilege and joy of the church. And in the New Testament, it says that every time churches gather, this is the kind of thing that they should do. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the first five verses. And so in fitting with that, which is the instruction of the Holy Spirit to us, we want to take some time in this service, even in light of the 4th of July holiday, uh, to pray for our church's ministries and to pray for our nation. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven and our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How we give you thanks for this wonderful gospel. We give you thanks and praise for your resurrection and that you have gathered us together to be the bearers of that light and of that good news to everyone everywhere. And so we give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for this commission, even as we give you thanks for our homes, the cities that we live in, the state that we live in, and for this country. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for our faithful parents and grandparents many generations back. We at Racine Bible give you thanks for our church's 90-year heritage, the legacy that has been handed to us. This is not something that we earned, but it is a gift from you. As we bow in prayer, Lord, we pray for uh, even some of our members who are serving in the armed forces. We pray for those who bear the sword to protect the innocent and to... um, bring a cessation to the wickedness of evildoers who would take innocent life. We pray for those who are in active military service now, and we pray especially, Lord, for our chaplains among them. We pray that the reality of the gospel of deliverance from death and of righteousness in the kingdom to come would would, um, really capture hearts in all of our armed services. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for drawing us into your family We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the many, many wonderful immigrants who have come into this country. We thank you, Lord, for the way that they uh, enrich our lives, even as we pray, Lord, for the the crisis along our southern border and the the, um, law enforcement officers who work there. We join our hearts together, Lord, in prayer for all of our elected officials at the local and state and federal level, Lord God. We pray for our city council members who live on some of the same streets that we live on. And even as we pray for our state legislatures in in Madison, for our governor, for at the federal level, for the Supreme Court, for our president and our vice president. As we pray for them, Lord, we confess our own failings in word and in deed. We confess our prayerlessness. We confess our uh, unrighteous anger or our apathy, whatever the case may be. 
And as we pray for our governing officials, Lord, we know that there are many ways that they have sinned. There are many ways that they rule wickedly, that they defiantly resist your will. Lord, we receive from your spirit that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And our prayer from our heart, Lord, is that you would remove the reproach of wickedness from our nation and that you would break the stiff arms that, uh, that, that hold you back and you would melt and change the depraved minds that refuse to call righteousness righteousness. We continue to pray, Lord, for the, the courts at the state level and at the Supreme Court level. We praise you, Lord, for those decisions even recently that have protected the innocent and that have been established on righteous principles. We pray for more so, Lord, because your word is good. Your way is just. And we ask that you would turn us to your way, that you may be glorified. And Heavenly Father, as your church, we know what our mission is. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven who have bowed the knee to the Lord and King of Kings, Jesus Christ, you've given us a mission to live in this world but not of this world. And so we ask that you would protect us from worldliness. We ask that you would protect us from uh, bowing to the gods of this age, even as we ask that you would protect us from fearfulness and defensiveness. Let us take the good news of Jesus Christ generously and fruitfully to everyone everywhere. Lord Jesus, build up your church. Build up this church as salt and light here, even as we seek to extend your gospel all around the world. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for every good gift which is from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've already sung the gospel, the, the foundational principles of the gospel that, that make up the gospel. Now we're going to sing um, foundational truths about the gospel, the fact that um, the gospel comes only from and through Jesus. It's not something that we can do ourselves. And our hope and our confidence that uh, we will always have the gospel isn't based on our good works or our merits, but it's based on the fact that he promises uh, to hold us securely in the palm of his hand. And so uh, this next song that we're going to sing um, uh, talks about the fact that uh, the gospel is only because of Christ and his righteousness. And it kind of uh, reminds me of a hymn that was written 150 years ago. It's not a hymn that, that we sing, uh, but I thought it would be helpful for us just to, to read it uh, to you before we sing uh, this next song that, that echoes uh, the same kind of mentality. This hymn is called uh, Not What My Hands Have Done. Uh, and so just listen as we read these words. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. 
I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his, I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. My Lord has saved my life and freely pardon gives. I love because he first loved me. I live because he lives. Would you stand as we sing? No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue.
open God's word together to uh, Isaiah 29 and 30. Let's ask his help as we open his word. Heavenly Father, now as your church is gathered in the name of Jesus, we ask great things from a great God. We ask now in this hour that Satan's captives would be released, 
and that you would bring the prodigals home. We ask in this moment that you would humble the self-righteous, that you would open blind eyes, grant true repentance, and build up your church in the most holy faith. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. We open together this morning to the ancient prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 29 and 30. And it is an ancient prophecy, and we expect it to speak to us today. And the reason that we expect that is because what happened, happens. What happened in the ancient historical setting is still happens today. Because people are the same. They make the same lousy mistakes and commit the same grievous sins. And God is the same. He's good and he's just and he's holy. So whenever we open the Bible, we don't magically make it mean something for us today. We understand what happened by understanding what happened in the historical context. That's called interpretation. And then we see how those same things still happen, and that's called application. So in the interpretation part of it, what happened, when we read Isaiah, especially these chapters in 29 and following, we're talking about Judah or Israel. It's actually called Ariel in our text, but that's Judah or Israel. And we're talking about Assyria, and we're talking about Egypt. And the deal was that Assyria was going to attack Israel. And God says, this is what's happening. This is what you have to do. Because Assyria is going to attack you, Israel. God says, look to me and I'll take care of you. But Israel walked by sight, not by faith. And that's where Egypt came in. And Israel or Judah said, uh, if Egypt maybe gets with us or we get with them, then together we can take on this bully of Assyria. And so they reached for a human answer instead of trusting the divine answer. That's what happened. And I'm here to tell you that's what always happens. We're called to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own stuff. We're called to listen to the Lord and not give in even though the strategies of the world sound convincing. That's the way of sight, not the way of faith. And so what happened then still happens now. That's why we need Isaiah. We're always tempted to believe the lies of the world instead of the truth of God. Somebody summarized all, this whole section. Uh, we'll, meet, we'll meet Hezekiah and Sennacherib in the next couple of chapters. This whole section of Israel going against Assyria, trying to get help from Egypt instead of getting help from the Lord. Somebody summarized this whole section as a verses. Promises versus policies. I think that's a good summary. Promises of God versus policies of humans. Do we trust the divine word or do we trust the plausible human wisdom? Human policies will always fill the vacuum when God's promises aren't trusted. But I'm here to tell you, if you trust God, something happens. This is the verse that we looked at last week, and I'm not mad at you if you forgot which verse we looked at last week because I have trouble remembering what I said last week. 
But the verse we looked at last week was Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. This is what happens if you trust the Lord. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You got that? When you trust in the Lord, this is what you get, an everlasting rock. Verses. When you trust in humanity, guess what you get? When you trust in humanity, you get something that is temporal, not eternal. You get something that is transient, not something that is permanent. You get something that's mortal instead of something that's immortal. And you get something totally shaky and unreliable instead of the rock everlasting. And so as we look at Isaiah 29 and 30, it's a bad news, good news deal. And there's five times as much bad news as good news. I'm going to show you five ways that we don't trust God and then the way God saves us from that. So to set the scene, we'll read uh, chapter 29, verses 1 through 8. And as we read this, uh, be prepared for whiplash. If you read, we're going to read Isaiah 29 verses 1 through 8 in just a second. And if you read it and you think, oh, Isaiah is saying that Assyria is going to pound Israel into dust. The answer is yes. But then in the very next verse, if you think Isaiah is saying that Assyria will itself be pounded into dust, the answer is yes. We have this whole ping pong thing going back and forth. Verse 29, uh, Judah is called Ariel. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David camped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the dust of the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall be a whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes, they shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, a flame of devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, they shall be like a dream, like a vision of the night as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he's eating and awakes with his hunger, not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he's drinking and awakes faint, and with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. What a creative way for Isaiah to say it. He says, because you haven't trusted the Lord, your enemies are going to defeat you, but then God in his grace is going to cause your enemies to be defeated, and all that defeat will be like remembering a dream where you thought you ate something, but you will still wake up hungry. He's getting at the difference between the, the eternal satisfaction of trusting in the Lord and the dreamlike temporariness of trusting in humanity. If that's the scene 
of trusting human policies in all of their folly instead of trusting God's promises in all of its perfect wisdom. Now I'll show you through this text the the five ways that we fail to trust the Lord and then the way that God saves us anyway. The first one, it comes in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 29, and it's that we're blind. We're blind so that the truth is a closed book instead of seeing and hearing the truth with a humble heart. That's our failure. We, We become blind so that the truth of God is like a closed book instead of seeing and hearing it with a humble heart. Listen to how creatively Isaiah says it. After he says, you're like a hungry man who dreamed that he was eating, but he wakes up hungry. He says in verse 9, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, you seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. And when men give it to someone who can read and they say, read this, he says, I cannot for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot even read. This is that God's people, even we sometimes become blind to his truth. We become deaf to his pleas. This is a kind of self-chosen blindness. Did you notice in the text that he said in verse 9, blind yourselves? And then he said in verse 10, the Lord has poured out upon you this blindness. Is this a kind of self-chosen blindness? The answer to that is yes. But is this a God-given, earned, and merited sentence of judicial blindness? The answer is yes. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 11 saying that in our current age, as God is gathering in the Gentiles, it seems that Israel is still blind, but a day is coming when she will see her Messiah. And notice where the blame lies in verse 10. He has closed your eyes, you prophets. He has covered your heads, you seers. Notice who God comes looking for first. It's the spiritual leaders. That's who the prophets are. It's the spiritual leaders. In our church, that would be the, the elders, the ABF leaders. The deacons serve as servant leaders. Last Sunday night at our congregational meeting, we approved the new members of our church board as deacons and elders. What we want in our leaders is not a blindness to God that's really smart about the things of the world. What we want in our leaders is a vision of God where we're not blind to his word and his principles. What happens to the church if her leaders have a big ear for worldly opinions and no ear for the word of God? What happens to that church? And so God judges the leaders, but he judges everybody with this blindness. And the text gets at this, but we, maybe we could ring it out a little bit because it's a question that comes up all the time. The question is, are, are, are people's hearts hard because they themselves chose to harden their hearts? But doesn't the Bible also say that God sends a blindness and a hardness? And from the scripture, we answer yes to, to both of those. 
we're at this, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's not really a conjunction of, of God's sovereignty and of human responsibility. Did these people choose to shut their eyes and shut their ears to God's word? The answer is yes. But did God also send even a judicial sentence of blindness upon them? Well, the answer is yes. The same as the answer to why was Jesus on the cross? Acts 2, the apostles say, it was the wicked plans and the injustice of wicked people that put Jesus on the cross. Is that true? Well, yes. But was it the foreordained sovereign plan of redemption of God himself? The answer is yes. We choose blindness, but then God can even strike us with this sentence of judicial blindness where God turns us over to our blindness. Listen to how he says it in 2 Thessalonians. You don't have to turn there, but the, the text is 2 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 12. This is talking about God sending a spirit of delusion in the end times. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will not believe and they will believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe in righteousness and took no pleasure in the truth. This is serious. And so uh, I want to take here a moment to answer a couple of probably two common pastoral questions that I get when we talk about is, is somebody that I know given over to judicial blindness so it's like pearls before swine and they're never going to get saved. Or sometimes someone will ask me because they feel so cold and dead because of what they have done. Sometimes somebody will ask me, um, They'll say, well, pastor, do you think that I myself am given over? I have an answer to those questions. Take the person who feels like they themselves might be given over. Maybe that's you as a woman or as a man. Am, am I, have I made so many bad decisions that God's finally given me over to blindness and I'm never going to come back? The answer is that if you're asking the question, am I given over, this is evidence that you are not given over. Because you still have a mind. You still have a heart. You still have a conscience. You still have an aspiration and a doubt, as weak as it may be. If you ask that question, then you're not given over. No way. Second question. People ask me, how do I know if somebody else is given over to their sin and, I, and, I, and, and, and so it's not going to do any good to, to share with them anymore? And I have a clear answer to that question too. The answer to how do I know if some other person is given over is you don't. You don't. You do not know that. And if you think you know that, you don't really know that. You don't. God knows, but there ain't nobody on God's green earth to whom God has whispered that information so that they can know it. So, so the strategy is don't, don't give up. Keep praying. Just because you've prayed for a family member who's unsaved for 20 years doesn't mean that God's answer is no. Hello, church? God's delays are not God's denials. Keep at it. Keep at it. 
Don't trust your own prayers. Don't trust their ability. Trust God who has said, come to me in prayer. And I, I don't know... I don't know half of what I ought to know about why God does the things that he does, but it sure seems to me that with a divine twinkle in his eye, God loves to surprise us in whom he chooses to save and when he chooses to save them. I've never predicted it successfully. And I'm glad I haven't. His plans are way better. Well, the first way that we fail to trust is that we're blinded. There's a second one there in Isaiah 29, and that's doing external religion and not developing a true internal heart. You hear that in verse 13. Verse 13 is a pretty famous verse because Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 15. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Isaiah condemns, as Jesus condemns in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9, where he proclaims this text, uh, empty religion, external rituals that don't have any true heart content. The Old Testament says again and again and again, the Old Testament, the Old Testament which is filled with, you could say, religious rituals, the Old Testament that's filled with the ceremonial law says again and again and again, hey, if you are using external religion to, uh, to fool God or just to sprinkle a little dust to get God to do what you want him to do, that will never work. God hates that. You don't use external things to get God to do what you want. That's hypocrisy. God doesn't dance to your tune. God wants the heart. And we want a ministry that gets to the heart. So to talk, if I could speak a little bit pastorally about this, because this is another area where we get a lot of questions. Like, how do we make sure that we get to the heart? How do I know if I or somebody else is just doing the externals and not doing the internals? I suppose the easiest way to see it in a church like ours with a vibrant youth ministry, the, the most common way to see it, not to pick on the young people, but is with the young people. Because the little guys, well, they have to come to church. Because when they're really little, their parents pick them up and bring them to church. <laughs> then they're bigger, but you still have to come to church because your parents are bringing you. And you're, while you're here, you do the external things. Because, well, maybe this is a crowd of people and... There are some people in this crowd and you like them. So you want them to like you. And if this is a place where doing externally Christian things gets you liked, then there's, you know, positive pressure to do that. And that's okay, but how do we know if it's not just external, but it's real? Well, in, you know, in this setting, you, you, you see that, uh, whatever, it at 18 or 19 years old when they have to make their own decision. Now that no one's picking them up and bringing them, are they going to drive themselves? And is there an inner drive that they want to be here or not? And just because I talked about youth for the last 90 seconds, all y'all who are over 19 years old are not off the Holy Spirit's hook. He wants to smack you around with this very text. 
Those of you in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. I said good morning this morning to a dear sister who's in her 80s. It is not impossible for you at that older age to just be doing the externals. Is it really there inside of you? How do we know? And the question is, how do we really get to the heart? Um, Amy and I have had our share of struggles in parenting, and it, maybe some of the pain that we've been through, sometimes it draws people to, to ask us their questions about parenting and how do we really get to the heart. I'm not sure that, I, I am sure that we don't have uh, all the right answers, but we've, got a, we've learned a couple over the years. So to talk a little bit about how to get to the heart, I don't know, maybe four little words to give you. Uh, the first word is prayer, which you probably expect, but I, I mean it maybe in an unexpected way. If you were to ask me uh, as a dad, how do you get to the heart of your kids? Or if you were to ask me as a pastor, how do you make sure you get into the heart of a, of a congregant who you're counseling? My answer is, I don't know for sure how to get to the heart. But I do know for sure who it is that knows how to get to the heart. And I ask him. I beg him. I plead with him. I add fasting to my prayers when I go before him because he moves in the heart. I don't know exactly how to do it, but I know who to ask. And he has bidden me to ask him. So pray. Pray on your knees. Pray with fasting. A second word about getting to the heart, I guess I would just put the word listen. Listen. And I don't mean uh, when you pray, listen for God to talk back. I mean when you're working with someone, ask them good questions and then listen to their answers. And ask them questions that, that don't let them play a game of dodgeball and really listen to the answers. Slow down and listen. I have the bad habit, maybe some of you have this bad habit too, I have the bad habit of cramming $200 conversations into 25 cent minutes because there's always more people I want to reach, more that I want to do, and I need to slow down and really listen when I ask a good question. Really listen for the answer and then move on that. Pray, listen. I guess the third word, wouldn't it be, would be time. Time and truth walk hand in hand. And everything that is true is revealed in time. And everything that is deceptive and a lie is unraveled in time. So give it time. What somebody loves will out over time. What somebody says they love, that's impressive, that's loud, that's whatever. But what somebody really loves will out over time through the choices that they make, the sacrifices they make, the, the direction they take. So give it time. Give it time. And then the fourth thing I would say would be start with your own heart. Start with your own heart. It's funny the times when I'm most broken over trying to reach someone else's heart 
are the best times for me to beg God to reach my heart. I, I don't know exactly how to reach someone's heart except in these ways and depending on the Spirit of God, depending on the Word of God. I don't know exactly how to do it, but would you let me hazard a guess at this? Uh, I don't know exactly how God does it or why God does what he does, but would you let me hazard this guess? If you yourself have a nasty, lying, hypocritical heart, why on earth would God want you to reach anybody else's heart? Start with your own heart. Start with your own heart. The ways that your heart is infected with the filthy lies of the world, the ways that your heart leans on Egypt, not on the God of Israel, repent of those ways. When Amy and I have most struggled to reach someone's heart also corresponds to the times when we ourselves have most grown spiritually. Start with your own heart and watch what God does. Well, if those are the first two, blindness and reaching the heart, the, the last three won't take as long as the first two. But just to show them to you, it's in, uh, in verses 15 and 16. The sin that we commit is that we get so proud that we call ourselves the potter and we make God the clay. External religion, just sprinkling a little dust where God told me to sprinkle it to get God to do what he wants me to do ultimately means that you're calling yourself the potter and God the clay. Verse 15, Ah, you who hide deep counsel from the Lord, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees, who knows us? <laughs> Look at verse 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing that has the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. My maker has no understanding. We get so turned upside down that we don't think God sees us. We don't think God knows. And we actually imagine that we're wiser than God when in reality he is the potter and we are the clay. In the original context, this was Judah's rulers. They knew that God's plan wasn't for them to run to Egypt, but they were like, we'll make our own thing. They trusted human policies rather than divine promises. They trusted the way of the world that sounds like it'll work. They didn't trust the living God. Now, at the end of chapter 29 is salvation. We'll loop back to that with the last point in the sermon. But let me show you the other two ways that we turn away, and we'll flip ahead to chapter 30. Verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You who set out to go to Egypt without asking my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter, the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace." an oracle on the beasts of Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying, fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of their donkeys, their treasures on the humps of their camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I call her still Rahab, who sits still. 
And now go write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book, that it may be for a time to come as a witness forever, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What a text. He says, you loaded up all your treasure and instead of entrusting it to God, you sent it to Egypt to get help from human philosophies and worldly wisdoms. And then when a prophet like Isaiah said, that ain't a good move, you said to Isaiah, quit saying that. Just tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. The fourth way that we fail is that we despise God's promises. We despise them. instead of trusting God's word. I've always been haunted by verses 8 through 11 and how those hearing the preaching are literally saying to the preacher, don't tell us that. Don't tell us what is right. Tell us smooth things that make us happy. The old country church, the man walking out, after a Sunday to go get his chicken dinner, said to the old preacher, I don't like the preaching. The old preacher said to the man, well, I guess it could be that God wrote the whole Bible and God put together the whole church so that you would only ever hear things you like. But don't you suppose it could be that God wrote the whole Bible and God put together the whole church because you are not yet the kind of person who likes what he should like. And you're not yet a person who is like God enough to like what God likes. Go home and think on that over your chicken. Despising God's promises instead of trusting God's word. And then fifth and finally trusting Egypt, worldly techniques instead of turning totally to the living God. And what happens when we do that, when we trust Egypt, instead of turning to God, look at how Isaiah, Isaiah is a master illustrator, look at how he illustrates it. Verse 13, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he throws another illustration in there, verse 14. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed ruthlessly, that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. Trusting in Egypt is like trusting in a big, thick brick wall that is starting to buckle. So how comfortable would you be on summer vacation with your grandkids your grandkids are doing their jumping jacks or their Legos or whatever they're doing. They're doing that under a wall that is a huge brick wall that's buckling out and the stones are falling off that wall and the dirt and the mortar's coming out. How comfortable are you with those kids playing under that wall? That's the picture here. And then he says it's like hurling, like getting to the, to the highest point on our church roof and hurling the most delicate china down so that when that thing shatters, there's not, even, there's not even a piece that you could use that would hold a drop of water. It's so shattered. 
that's what trusting in worldly wisdom will lead to. And yet, and yet, and yet, worldly wisdom sounds so smart. And worldly ways are so popular. Of course they are. The way is broad that leads to destruction. Many find it. The way is narrow, leads to life. If these are the five ways that we ruin it, let's end with how Jesus saves. We see it in chapter 29 and we see it in chapter 30. In chapter 29 is when he said, I made you blind and I made you deaf because you made yourself blind and you made yourself deaf. But look at what he says, chapter 29, verse 18. Don't miss it. Isaiah 29, verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For all the ruthless are gonna come to nothing and the scoffer will cease and all those who watch to do evil shall be cut off. God reverses the blindness. God reverses the deafness. The light of the gospel shines and it opens blind eyes. The light of the gospel shines and it opens blind eyes. The word of the gospel sounds through and it penetrates blockhead cement ears so that it gets through. Church, this is why we pray. This is why we preach. This is why we trust. This is why we believe that God's delays are not God's denials and we keep praying and we keep sharing. I got a call uh, yesterday. What do you call something when it's in the middle of the night? I never know if it's yesterday or today. Like, like a 1 a.m. call from a family member asking me to pray for another extended family member um, because that unsaved extended family member is in an absolute crisis. And so on the phone, I got on my knees with the family member who I'm on the phone with and we're asking God, use this crisis to break through the blind eyes, to break through the deaf ears. We cry out to God because he's the one that changes hearts. And he's promised that he does that through the living word of Jesus Christ. God saves. Now I'll show you how God saves in chapter 30. Then we'll sing our closing song. In chapter 30, verses 15 through 19. Look at this. Look at this, church. Verse 15, chapter 30. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Oh, but you're unwilling. And you said, no, we'll flee upon horses and we'll flee away and we'll ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one and the threat of five. You shall flee till you're left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. But therefore, verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The horses, they, they, always, they always get insulted in God's word. I don't know what it is God has against horses. It's because they symbolize the techniques of man. 
the wisdom of the world. And he says, you think these Egyptian horses and all the money you put on the camels are going to save you? It isn't. But God literally says, I am waiting eagerly to save you. The double wait in verse 18, brilliant. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Doesn't it make sense to you that verse 15 would say, in rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust you shall be saved. Wait on the Lord. The double wait in, in verse 18 is, 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 is almost puts God on his tiptoes, so to speak. I know he doesn't have toes, but it almost does. He's on, he's on his tiptoes longing to be gracious. Oh, the sentence of justice will be carried out but it's as if behind the sentence of justice, there's this mercy and this grace. And God's like, I'm waiting to be gracious and merciful to you. Almost as if God himself is pleading, let that justice fall on my son on that cross instead of on you. Trust me, for this is the way of salvation. It is nothing other than the light, the one who opens blind eyes and who unstops deaf, blockheaded ears, the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived, died, rose, ascended, and is returning. Trust him. The only thing you have to do is hear the call of Jesus, come unto me, come unto me. And when you place yourself not under the yoke of Egypt, not under the yoke of hypocritical religion, but when you put yourself under the yoke of Jesus, what will you find? Almost those of you here who have, who have put yourselves under the yoke of Jesus, you know the answer to that question. What do you find? Oh, yeah, we find a burden, and we find a burden that is light, and we find a load that is joy and peace and rest forever. And so in living faith, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, even today. Let's pray. Lord God, that you would wait to be gracious to us. Oh, make us, make us women and men who wait on you, who look to you, who trust in you. Oh, Lord, grant us a living faith. May we drop Egypt. May we drop the war horse of man. May we drop worldly philosophies and human techniques. And may with a living faith, may we look to you and you alone for salvation. Do a good work in us now by your spirit, Lord Jesus. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.